Time will tell. 20 years ago, when confronted with the harsh reality of war, there were hopes that the removal of Saddam Hussein will lead to Iraq realizing its vast potential. The first few months after the March 2003 war and the ensuing American occupation witnessed upheaval and chaos mixed with newfound liberties of expression and movement. It led many to say, time will tell if the war was a necessary bitter pill for a better future. 20 years on, time has not given us a clear answer. Iraq is filled with contradictions today, from a thriving civil society and political pluralism to crippling corruption across all state sectors. The constitution passed in 2005 guarantees women 25% of parliamentary seats, and yet women and girls are regularly targeted. Iraq is producing more oil than ever, with 4 million barrels a day. Yet, electricity cuts continue to be a daily challenge for the country's 44 million inhabitants. Poverty levels in 2023 are at 25%, according to Iraq's own Ministry of Planning. The list of contradictions goes on. Those who lost loved ones in the past 20 years have paid the heaviest price. And yet, there are those who lost loved ones during the years of Saddam Hussein's dictatorship. There is no equivalence to those losses, nor possible comparison. Each loss is personal. I'm Mina Al-Arabi, a journalist whose career and life have been marked by the trials and tribulations of Iraq's wars and politics, like all Iraqis of my generation, the generation that precedes, and the one that follows us. And now from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi, I'm looking back at what happened, asking how this war has shaped not only Iraq, but also global politics. In this podcast series, I speak with people for whom 2003 was a turning point or a starting point. This is the Iraq War 20 Years On podcast series from the National News. I'm joined by three Iraqis today. Fanar Haddad, Assistant Professor of Arab Studies at University of Copenhagen. Mina Ali, a certified language trainer based in Iraq. And Ali Shouk, senior reporter at The National based here in Abu Dhabi. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I want to take you back 20 years for a moment. I can remember where I was the day Saddam's statue came down in April 2003. Getting a call from my uncle after 13 years of exile, we were not able to speak to each other. It was an emotional moment. It was a moment filled with fears, doubts, possible hopes, the unknown. And yet it was also a moment of release that finally we saw a moment when Saddam Hussein's regime was no longer going to be in control. Mina, I want to ask you, where were you at that moment? Hi. Um, first of all, let me just start by saying this was, this was really emotional and it brought back too much memories that I kind of wanted to forget through the those 20 years of my life. Um, I remember that day vividly, actually. I was seven years old. I just joined school. And you know how exciting it is. And out of nowhere, life just turned from colorful, joyful, and happy to something black and white. All I remember was people panicking, uh, noises I've never heard my entire life as a child. And as a result, um, it caused me way too much mental illness that I had to deal with until this day. And, and as you said, life turned upside down for you. But you were a child. Did you understand what was happening? Not quite, actually. All I remember is that I was excited to see American people 
coming in our house, I thought they were guests at, at the beginning. But then again, when we started seeing all these news, seeing all these, I'm sorry, dead bodies all over the place in Baghdad, um, things started getting terrifying. And that's how I kind of started understanding that an actual war is happening. These people are not friendly. People are actually dying and people like us are getting displaced from their places. And after the immediate shock of the war, there were also the years of vast security disruption, instability, news of kidnappings, killings, and so forth. And you were growing up at that time. I was a victim of kidnapping, actually. You were kidnapped yourself? Yes, with my sisters. How old were you then? I was nine or ten. Nine, yeah. Nine years old. And was it for ransom or was it politically motivated? It was because of my last name or because of my family name. Sectarian reasons? Absolutely. It is definitely something that I wish no one would ever experience, honestly. I'm 27 years old now, uh, which is an adult, yet I still can't even think about those days. It terrifies me. It freaks me out. It keeps me awake at night, even 20 years later from work. I'm sorry to hear that, Mina. It's fine. (laughs) Well, in some ways it's not fine, but you're holding yourself with great grace. And how how did you return home after the kidnapping? It was a very long story, actually, but um, in my opinion, a miracle happened. The last minutes of the kidnapping that happened, all I remember is that there was this really tall, bald guy uh, coming into the room where we were staying in and where we kept in, telling us to get, to be prepared. Uh, to be prepared means that we're going to get shot and get, getting killed. And I remember my older sister was telling me and my youngest sister that it's going to be fine. You're not going to feel it. It's just something that is hot. It's going to take a few seconds and you wouldn't feel anything at all after that. And um, as we were just sitting, she was teaching us Shahada, which I was confused about that day. Uh, another man came in and he was like, you know what? Just leave. And we just left running away from the house. In my opinion, that was a miracle. It was a miracle. And you still don't know who was behind it. Al-Qaeda. I'm so sorry about what you went through, Mina. Thanks for speaking to us about your experience. I can't imagine having to live with that trauma and the ongoing pain from that memory. One of the many ramifications of 2003 was the proliferation of armed groups, Al-Qaeda or different militia groups that really targeted innocent Iraqis. Ali, where were you? April 2003, or March and then April 2003. So you're talking about the beginning of the war, which was 19th of March. Uh, I was like, that day I was at my home. Uh, I live in uh, Al-Jihad district, which is closer to Baghdad airport, um, west of Baghdad. So on that day, I still remembered clearly. Um, I returned back to my house uh, at that night. I went with my friends outside of Baghdad because we were anticipating the war going to start. So we wanted to have like a final look before the war. So we went to Baghdad. It was empty. Everybody was closing their shops and stuff. So we had a, like a meal and I returned back home around 12. How old were you? Uh, 25. That time, 24, 25. Uh, I, uh, so I returned back home. I was trying to sleep when all of a sudden it was like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. Like a loud noise happened. There was a bomb because first they targeted, I think, in the area of west of Iraq. And then I still remember my father when he was hearing war, war, it's started. 
So I have like uh, uh, my family, my, my father and mother, my sister and my brother. So we wake up, we went immediately under the stairs, which is usually we go there when there is bombs. We get this experience from Iran war. So and that day, just like in the morning after a couple of bombs, then we know that war's happened. I'm, I was working as an employee in the government sector in the Ministry of Industry as a chemist. Uh, so I supposed to join um, the ministry, uh, my work on the next day. So they were prepared. They gave us like a permission to walk in the streets in case there is a curfew. So there was a permission with my name. So on that day, uh, second day, I went immediately to the to the to the to the my job place, which is in Al Taji, so on the borders of Baghdad. Before like a week, we digged for two bunkers. We were fifteen civilians, uh, but they asked us just like when the war starts, you need to be there. You need to be presented to protect the institute. So yeah, on the next day I went, and um, yeah, this is, that's the first day for me. The digging of the bunkers, that was quite an experience, I can imagine. You're preparing for a war. Yes, exactly. That's like two weeks before. We, well, um, most of the Iraqis, especially the guys, are like familiar with using of weapons and uh, digging bunkers because after you graduate from college or even from high school, you need to serve in the military for six months or a year and a half. But digging a bunker, I mean, we were laughing when we were doing this. Because we just like thought, no, it's impossible that what will be happening. Because in Iraq, we don't have satellites, we don't have mobile phones at that time. So we just like, we don't know anything. We just like have two government TV channels uh, that is not telling us anything outside the borders. We don't know what's going to happen. You said you were in Iraq during the 1980 to 1988 war with Iran. Mina, you were not born during that time. But for Iraqis from 1980, there were constant periods of war, or intermittent airstrikes, and of course, the pain of sanctions from 1990 onwards. Yet few inside the country expected the full scale of 2003 and the overthrow of the entire system, including the dismantling of state institutions like the army. That's true. I was born in 78, so I was two years old when the war started with Iran. So um, we still remember that Iran when I was a child, I mean, when I was in the age of Mina. So I still remember the war in that time, how we were hiding. But that you, that cannot be compared with what happened uh, during 2003. That was much difference. Now, if you take us to before the war or before even the expectation of the war, what was life like? It was nice. It was nice. I will tell you, it was nice. Yeah, I mean... Despite sanctions, despite what the regime was yes, like. Yes, because I mean, in the nineties, I was like I was in the high school, and then I was in college, and it was a good time for me. I wasn't, and I was studying in Baghdad University. There is suffering. There is just like poverty, everything. But I mean, people—they are not happy. A lot of people were died, especially for children, because of the sanctions. But people were just like adopting, and people were feeling more secure there now. Until now, I ask myself, what's better, before or after? Until now, I'm confused inside. There are some very bad moments before and even now, because I'm still going to Iraq every, every year. But I don't know, until now, I'm confused about that. I think that's one of the questions that many Iraqis struggle to answer about, was it better before or after? And I actually resent that question because I think it's an unfair question. It's not a blanket. You can't say all Iraqis are better or all Iraqis are worse. I think there are certain Iraqis that have made 
a lot of money or gotten to positions of power since 2003. But also there are Iraqis that lived incredibly difficult times since 2003. So it's a mixed bag. Fener, I want to bring you into the conversation. Where were you in March 2003? And do you remember the fall of Saddam's statue in April 2003? Yeah, of course. A uh, very different story than our colleagues. I was in uh, London. Uh, so I can give you a diasporic uh, vantage point. Um, as you remember, I mean, I should mention I was uh, a graduate, so I was about to start my postgraduate studies in 2003. And uh, the Iraq war was all anyone, or at least anyone who was politically engaged, could talk about. Uh, it was the defining sort of event in our sort of political socialization, if you like. And as for settings, but at least let me talk about London, uh, Iraqis in London uh, tended to have, a, I'd say, an obsession, uh, obsessive fixation on Saddam or an obsessive hatred of Saddam. And so a lot of Iraqis uh, in diasporic settings were very much pro-war. Uh, I myself was not. In fact, I wrote my first piece ever for one of the uh, London School of Economics uh, student papers against the war. Um, but I was I felt that I was in a minority amongst Iraqis, certainly my family uh, in and out of Iraq, I should add, uh, were very much pro-war. The idea being that this would rid Iraq of Saddam um, and that nothing could be worse than Saddam and the sanctions and the Ba'ath. Uh, but unfortunately, what we've seen since is that things can always get worse. Uh, and what I find uh, astonishing is how the same mistakes are being made today. Uh, where you sometimes hear um, some Iraqis calling for a more aggressive U.S. stance or calling for a more interventionist U.S. policy to rid Iraq of uh, the current political classes because nothing could be worse. Well, you know, things can always get worse. But to go back to your question, so I was in London. Uh, very much this was the main issue on everyone's mind. Um, I definitely remember the uh, April 9th vividly. Um, very conflicted. As, as I said, I was very much against the war, uh, but seeing the statue pulled down, uh, I was conflicted between that, the sort of the, the joy of seeing what was unthinkable um, happening, the fall of, of Saddam and the Ba'ath, uh, versus, you know, the reservations that I'd had all along, that, you know, this is not going to end, end well. And sort of you're watching the footage, you're glued to the TV, and you're hoping that maybe, just maybe, this might turn out. And then you're reminded of all the very obvious indicators that this is likely uh, to go bad very quickly. But unfortunately, I think it went far worse than most people, most uh, skeptics had anticipated. Could it have turned out differently, Fana? I mean, yes, I suppose it could have. But I've always been of the opinion that what happened after 2003 there were a lot of factors that made it likely, not inevitable, but made it likely and meant that a different, more benevolent path was, again, not impossible, but very difficult. It, was, it, seemed to, it seems to me, even with hindsight, that what happened was always likely to happen given when the change took place, 2003, given who was involved, uh, the U.S. administration, the nature of the U.S. administration in question the nature of the Iraqi politicians and political actors in question. Uh, had this happened prior to 2003, it could have been a different U.S. administration and a different Iraqi political opposition. As it turned out in 2003, as a result of all kinds of things, uh, the Iraqi political opposition was one that was 
already heavily invested in identity politics. It was one dominated by sect-centric uh, Shia actors and ethnocentric Kurdish actors. I think Iraq itself as well, after 13 years of sanctions, had been corroded to um, an unbelievable degree. The institutional decay and institutional collapse did not begin in 2003. It began in 1990 with the sanctions. And for me, one of the ultimate what-if questions is how differently would it have looked if regime change took place after the Kuwait war, after 1991? Uh, because you're dealing with a different uh, Iraqi society, you're be dealing with a different Iraqi institutional setting, and you're de dealing with a slightly different Iraqi political opposition, and it was a different American administration. As it happened, all the ingredients for failure were in place come 2003, whether it's on the Iraqi level or on the uh, American level. There was not a single uh, a variable that, for me, gave me cause for optimism. I like your emphasis on the idea of that we had a sectarian slash ethnic-centric identity politics being pushed onto Iraq. And I think that probably characterized at least the first 10 years after the war, if not till today. And so I specifically, when I was putting this podcast together, didn't ask where you were from, what city you were from, what ethnicity or, or sect, partly because I think it's rude to do so. And I remember immediately after the war, or actually for 10 years after the war, anytime somebody met me from the US or the UK, they'd be like, so are you Sunni or Shia? They don't even have the courtesy to ask what city you're from. They just ask what's your, um, what's your sect? And then they try to figure out what your ethnicity was and then think that according to that, they could pigeonhole you and what you thought and believed. So I specifically didn't ask you that because I think it doesn't matter. Everyone's personal experience is different and your political views are different. However, why was Iraq's national identity diluted in the way that it was after 2003 politically? Was it a method of control? Was it because of the politicians that came in? Um, Ali, I want to ask you that first. Well, the thing is, after 2003, a lot of Iraqis, I mean, we just like in Iraq, we are just like a fabric. Sunnis and Shia and Kurds. So you can see a lot of families are married between Sunnis and Shias. So this is like, it wasn't like a big deal or a big issue in Iraq until 2003. We start noticing even in the Western media, they start calling some districts in Iraq like a Sunni district or a Shia district. We start hearing this after 2003, which was like strange for us. But for, I'm talking like from an individual. Individual view, just like we had like politicians, they came from outside the borders that we slightly heard about them. We don't know them. And then they ask us to go with democracy. You need to vote. We, they need to teach Iraqis about democracy before they put the whole democracy process and voting. We don't know these guys. So the first election that happened in 2005, a lot of people just like voted based on their ethnicity. So they, the Shia will go to and choose the Shia. The Sunnis, they go with for the Sunnis. So my point is like, politi politically, we were confused. Iraqis were struggling after the war. A lot of them were like poor people. And all of a sudden, all the gates were open. So we were confused. We were trying to just like, to know what we're going to do. And we just like forget Iraq. We were just like busy with their problems. And we just forget Iraq. Where, where Iraq is going? What's the future of Iraq? Mina, I want to ask you, did you find that these different ways of describing Iraqis as being 
you know, be it Shabak or Yazidi or Sunni or Arbi or whatever it is, did you find that that actually reflected who you were? And, and why did we go down this disastrous path? Absolutely not. I actually, um, the first time I heard it, I I was taught at school. I remember one of our teachers was telling me that if anyone asks you in the street, if you're Sunni or Shi'i, please don't reply. Always reply with I'm Iraqi or I'm Arab or I'm just Muslim. I never understood the concept of being Sunni, being Shi'i, being even Christian. Like, why does it matter? I, all I thought in my entire life is that you look at a person as a human being and then judged by that, judged by their, uh, their actions, you could tell if they're a good or bad person. But then reality hit and everyone in the street was actually asking for your IDs, asking if you were Sunni, asking if you were Shi'i. And that was, that was just a disaster. Like, um, in the neighborhood that I used to live in, we weren't a majority. And that's why we actually got kicked out or displaced from my house. Uh, they kept asking about our last names, our religious beliefs. And just by that, they believed that we were terrorists. They believed that we were, we were horrible people and we should just leave the country and leave, leave the house and then leave the country, actually. So it makes zero sense to me listening to such things. Fenar, how did we get to a point, as Ali says, we forgot Iraq. How did we get to Point where sectarianism and ethnicity and all the differences within Iraq became a way to dilute national identity rather than actually make the country stronger? Um, I mean, for me, it goes back to the point I mentioned about all the variables for failure were all in place, uh, including on this issue. Uh, look, every society on the planet has lines of difference, right? Uh, men and women, uh, this religion and that, black and white, whatever. When a place is thrown into the turmoil that Iraq was thrown into, uh, the complete lawlessness, the chaotic aftermath of uh, April 2003, and when this vacuum is controlled by forces that I speak in the name of these lines of difference and that compete with each other along these lines of difference and that fight each other along these lines of difference, Inevitably, these lines of difference, which are benign most of the time, uh, turned in, turn into lines of conflict. Neighbor starts fearing neighbor. Uh, neighborhood starts fearing neighborhood. Um, and I think that's what we saw. And again, it goes back to uh, who was in charge of making 2003 happen? Who was in charge, entrusted with making it succeed? The American administration and the Iraqi opposition uh, in exile, both of whom, viewed Iraq fundamentally in terms of communal identity as basically a country made up of oppressive Sunnis and oppressed Kurds and Shias, right? This is something that the American administration at the time and most, I won't say all, most of the Iraqi opposition in exile also agreed upon. After 2003, the, polit the lines of political contestation were precisely these lines because that's the the nature of the political actors involved. I wasn't there, but to my mind, it strikes me that ordinary Iraqis were placed in the unbearable situation of being stuck between warring uh, political and militant camps that are fighting along these lines. And for uh, a personal safety and existential security, if nothing else, uh, they were forced to seek the protection of one side or the other. And I completely agree with you, this idea of Iraq's national identity often being put into question. The reality was 
what was being forced upon it. And you saw moments when Iraqis patriotism would rise up. And there are moments that come to my mind. You remember when um, Iraq won the Asia Cup in 2006? Was it 2007? 2007, you're right. Because the height of the sectarian war was 2005, 6, 7. And then we had this moment where every Iraqi under the sun, even those who don't follow football, were over the moon. And you had a moment of coming together and you saw how something so simple could spark that kind of emotion. You had another moment when um, Pope Francis visited Iraq. Likewise, you started to see symbolism, Iraqi symbols coming up. Everybody was excited wherever he was. It wasn't because he visited their own city. Rather, it was this idea that the Pope would come and visit Iraq. So you have these moments of celebration or moment of you almost forget everything that had happened. And, you know, in my mind, sometimes when I think about Iraq and what's happened, 2003, 2004 was war and occupation. 2004 to 2014, it was really setting the political system that we have now, the elections, the constitution. And in that, as that political framing was being pushed upon the Iraqi people, you had sectarianism really flaring up because it was the only way that political system could have existed. 2014, of course, to 2017 was ISIS, the rise of ISIS and that kind of breakdown of the state in a different way. And then 2017, 2019, was this new moment where people were refinding their voices and, of course, culminated in the demonstrations of 2019, Tishreen, where we had young people, again, largely of a generation similar to yours, uh, Mina, and slightly younger, who took to the streets and said, actually, we reject all of that. And it was at that moment where it felt that the 2003 war really didn't matter. Saddam Hussein's regime no longer mattered. It was people talking about, where are we today? And then since the demonstrations and that movement, now the jury's out. And it's hard to know which direction Iraq will take. And so I want to talk about where we are in the present and what learnings have been, have been taken away from that. So, Mina, I want to ask you, what works in Iraq today? What would you say these are the reasons I have hope for the country, and I find that this actually works well. Young people. As a content creator, I deal with lots of young people. I meet them almost every day, and I don't really know them. They're strangers to me, but seeing what they're doing to society, seeing what they're interested in lately, is the only reason that has given me hope that at some point, sometime, this country may or may not turn to be something good. So this is actually the only reason, as I mentioned again, that has given me hope. Fener, you went back and spent some time in Iraq. What, what did you learn from that time there? And also, what gives you hope for the country? Why are you assuming that I have hope for the country? <laughs> <laughs> you must always have hope. We're Iraqis. Well, uh, I got to say, I'm quite pessimistic about uh, the future. Um, I agree with Mina about, uh, I mean, it, it, there is a need to focus on on the younger generation. Iraq is an extraordinarily young population. Uh, they literally are the future with, what, 60% under the age of 35 or something like that. And I do think that there has been a generational turnover, uh, Mina, as you said, particularly since 2017, this has been evident earlier even. I'd say, yeah, around 2015, thereabouts. Clearly, there's a generational turnover that means that the political classes are even less representative than they have been um, before 2015. So you have a population that is not shaped by the Saddam era issues that uh, are really what's the socialization period of of the uh, political classes in many cases. 
Um, and I think that uh, the younger generation do have different sort of political outlooks than what you see in formal politics. Now, where that what comes out of that is an open question, and will the system allow uh, for new entrants and the like is an open question. My only, I suppose, and I know this is not saying much, uh, my only hope is that you know nothing can stay the same. Uh, and I do think the younger generation have more awareness uh, and sort of a better understanding of politics and of what they're entitled to uh, than the older generation. And I'll, I, on this, I'll link back to an earlier point you made, uh, this issue of comparing which is better pre or post-2003. Like yourself, I also find that a ridiculous question, but for a slightly different reason. I think Iraqis are entitled to a third option, to something better than the grotesque Ba'athist regime or the equally grotesque uh, status quo. And I think the younger generation may well be of that mindset, hopefully. Is the third way, Ali? For Iraq? Yes. No. No, it can't be. I mean, I used to be optimistic in 2003 and 2004 and 2005. But after what we've seen, I mean... When you don't have a government, a strong government that's controlling Iraq, the people are powerless because people in Iraq since 2003 until now, they are controlled by militias. Militias always more powerful than the government. But I was like losing hope until 2019 when I saw the Tishreen revolution. I mean, I've, I've seen young people just like they went to the streets but they were brutally killed. And despite months standing in this revolution, militias managed to just like destroy the whole revolution. Of course, we have hopes with the new generation because I think with the, like, with the revolution of social media, the whole generation are now watching and they're seeing other, their colleagues in other countries and they see what they are doing. And they have high hopes to make a change. But that depends if the other side will give them a green light, which I don't think so. Well, I don't think they'll give it up. This might be something that has to be taken. Exactly. I go to Iraq every year and I've seen the people and people just like fed up talking about changing the political regime and the elections. So they are just like fed up. So it must be a miracle happened to Iraq to change it. We've mentioned miracles more than once on this podcast, but every day there's a miracle in Iraq with the will of its people and their resilience. Hope lies in Iraq's youth, and yet it is a heavy burden for young people to carry, to revive and improve what previous generations have ruined. Change won't come through politics alone. Rather, it may come in spite of it. As Fenner said, time will tell how Iraq's future will unfold. Just like in 2003, we said time will tell. Mina shared her own personal experience of kidnapping and the terrible effect it had on her. In the next episode, my guest speaks of the kidnapping of his own father and the devastating events that followed. This episode is one of a four-part series mapping the Iraq War of 2003. Please listen to all four episodes on thenationalnews.com and major podcast providers. 